Lord, it is a comforting thought to know that your grace will lead us home, that this world that we live in, it's not our destination. That we have a mansion prepared for us. That we have fellowship that is on a more intimate level than we've ever experienced awaiting us with you. That we will no longer see and know dimly, veilly, in a behind a veil. But the veil will be removed. We'll see clearly. We'll know perfectly. And we rejoice knowing that our sovereign God has always had his eye on us, is always directing us, and will bring us home safely. Now, Lord, please speak through me. Speak to prepared hearts. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I'm going to begin with what is called a history of persecution. Uh, have any of you seen or heard of at least the movie Jesus Revolution? Okay. Uh, it tells the story of Calvary Chapel uh, and Pastor Greg Laurie. Um, I thought you might be interested to know his message from last week. That is Pastor Greg Laurie. Uh, in the Christian Post, it reported that it, in a headline, this was his, this is what he preached on. It says, fasten your seatbelt, Pastor Greg Laurie talks, potential fulfillment of Bible prophecy in Israel-Hamas war. Author Evangelist says, Jerusalem is the focal point of end times events. Uh, in the sermon, Laurie goes on to quote Zechariah 12 as proof that the prophet foretold how God would use the city of Jerusalem to bring his judgment upon the world. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Okay, I have one person that said, yes, sir. I mean, how long have I been going over this stuff with you guys? Okay, uh, well, we've, you know, we're way ahead of Pastor Lori's church, okay? I want you to know that. He got nothing on us, Okay. But on a serious note, what about the recent tragic events in Israel? Um, on Saturday, October 7th, uh, just over a week ago, 2023, Hamas terrorists descended upon Israel. And as of this morning, over 1,300 Jews, um, and I think it's, 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 I'm not sure the exact number of the innocent Palestinians that have lost their lives as well, um, but over 1,300 Jews were targeted. They were raping women, executing entire families, burning people alive to death, including babies in their cribs, beheading babies. They massacred 260 people at a concert, and they've taken over what we believe to be over 150 hostages. Appalling, barbaric, uh, evil behavior. And the world watched in a horrified shock as the stories were told and the images uh, were posted. Videos could be seen, undeniable uh, 
atrocities and evidence. In the United States, politics took a back seat as both Democrat and Republican joined together and denounced this terrorism for the most part. But something else that was almost as shocking as these atrocities happened around the world and sadly in America as well. Uh, Anti-Semitism raised its ugly head once again. There were pro-Hamas and anti-Israel protests in London, uh, even as of yesterday, and in Australia. Uh, Students on college campuses in the United States, and of course the United States has been a longtime ally of Israel, uh, rejoiced over the barbaric deaths of the Jews. Uh, Student groups signed agreements standing in solidarity with Palestine and Hamas. Some groups even went as far to blame the Jews for starting this massacre. And once again, worldwide hatred of Jews uh, became evident. On that horrific Saturday evening, Israel was obviously forced to declare war against Hamas. This was their 9-11. And sadly, this is nothing new to Israel. According to Wikipedia and other sites, uh, since its reestablishment as a nation in 1948, Israel has been engaged in 16 wars or conflicts that are all centered around the Arab-Israeli relations. But even before regaining their status as a nation in 1948, Israel had a history of violent persecution. We know this. During the time of the Egyptians, what happened to the Jews? They were enslaved and persecuted. And their children were, under the age of two years old, were what? They were massacred. Okay. In 605 B.C., uh, Jews who lived in the Babylonian Empire were persecuted and deported. Anti-Semitism was also practiced by the government of many different empires, under the Roman Empire, for example, what happened at the birth of Christ. Again, boys, two years younger, another massacre. Okay? But under many different empires, such as the Roman Empire, and they were persecuted, Israel was, by the followers of many different religions, including Christianity. In the Middle Ages, during the Crusades, flourishing Jewish communities on the Rhine and the Danube, is that how you say that river, Danube? They were uh, utterly destroyed. There was also widespread persecution in many different regions of the world, in the Middle East and in Europe. Jews were commonly used as scapegoats for tragedies and disasters, such as, I did not know this until I studied this, the Black Death persecutions. Are you familiar with that? Does anyone know what the Black Death is? The Black Death epidemics that devastated Europe in the mid-14th century. But yes, exactly. Did you know the Jews were blamed for that? Now, we now know where did the Black Plague come from? Rats on ships from other countries. <laughs> but the Jews were initially blamed because, you know, it annihilated more than half of the population at the time in Europe, and rumors spread that Jews caused the disease by deliberately poisoning wells. Hundreds of Jewish communities were destroyed by violence. 
Other tragedies include the 1066 Granada Massacre, where more than 1,500 Jewish families, numbering 4,000 persons, were massacred. They fell in one day. There's a massacre of 1391 in Spain. Jews either converted to Christianity or they died. There's the many targeted organized massacres in Europe, including, obviously, the Russian Empire, where 100,000 Jews were killed. But it's called a pogrom. And of course, there's the Holocaust, the murder of six million Jews by Nazi Germany. Now, the question is why so much historic worldwide hatred of Israel or of the Jews? And I think it lies in, in this verse right here. God said to them, You are a holy people. To the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, prior to this, I believe, from the moment that God chose Abram's descendants to be his people for the purpose of what? To be a blessing to all the nations. In Genesis 12, those people, Israel had a target on her back and Satan has sought the nation's destruction ever since. There was a prophetic picture of that that happened when Abraham fathered through Hagar Ishmael, and then eventually had Isaac, and what did Ishmael do to Isaac? He persecuted the boy. He mistreated him. That was a picture of what was going to come until Jesus returns again. But when God revealed the true Israel of God, which is, of course, the church, one would think, right, that the destruction of ethnic or the nation of Israel, ethnic Jews, that that would cease as Satan now would focus his attack on the church. But that has not happened, has it? I just gave you evidence that it has not happened. In addition to persecuting the church, Satan still seeks the elimination of the nation of Israel. And it hits home because of the events of last weekend and this week. And this is where we find ourselves in our sermon series. Who is being attacked? Israel is. The Antichrist, most people believe, the man of, it's called the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, empowered, possessed by Satan, is once again seeking to eliminate Israel. But I want to begin by talking about cleanliness. We have all heard the saying, cleanliness is next to godliness, okay? Now sadly, part of that is true. Doesn't mean your house should be organized, bed doesn't have to be made every day, all right? You don't have to rinse off the dishes and clean them before you put them in the dishwasher. Otherwise, what's the purpose of a dishwasher, right? Anyways, part of that is true. Just like a house needs a regular cleansing, so does a nation from time to time. So I want to talk about cleansing. In 168 B.C., remember, you might remember this, Antiochus Epiphanes, March in Jerusalem, vandalized the temple, 
erected an idol on the altar, and desecrated its holiness with the blood of swine. He forbid the worship of God and tried to force the Jews to engage in idol worship and ultimately worship himself as Zeus incarnate. A priest by the name of Mattathias instigated an uprising with his five sons called what? Do you remember this? The Maccabean Revolt. This is true Jewish history. You can read about it. One of his sons, Judah, Judas the Maccabean or Judas the Maccabeus or Judas the Hammer, um, became well known as they engaged in guerrilla warfare. In three years, the Maccabees cleared the way back to the Temple Mount, which they reclaimed. And the first thing they had to do in order to, before they could worship, was they had to cleanse the temple. They dismantled the defiled altar and constructed a new one in its place. Three years to the day after Antioch's mad rampage, the Maccabees held a dedication of the temple with proper sacrifice, rekindling the golden menorah and eight days of celebration and praise to God. And Jewish worship had been reestablished. But perhaps the most famous part of the story is what happened during the eight days of cleansing or purification. Does anybody know what the story is behind this? I've shared it before, but I hope that you guys will remember this. A tiny jar of oil, which was required to keep the candles lit. They needed a lot of oil, but a tiny jar of oil kept the candles burning for the full eight days. To this day, the Jews celebrate this event called Hanukkah. Okay? So whenever you see the eight candles, remember that story. Now, that was all part of a cleansing that was taking place to purify the temple, to make it ready for worship, for the king, for God's presence. Now, 200 years later, so from 168 B.C. to 200 years later, what's the date? I know you said, when I came to church, it was my understanding there would be no math, okay? What did you say? 32 A.D. So roughly 32 A.D., which, of course, is the time of Christ, okay? But 200 years later, another cleansing takes place. Jesus, the King of the Jews, arrived in Jerusalem on a donkey. We call this What? We celebrate it every year, Palm Sunday, which is really what it's called in the Bible, the triumphal entry. Okay, we lay the palms down for the king and their, their, their coats, and so he would have to walk on the dirty ground and so on. History tells us a small group of followers shouted this as he entered Jerusalem. Blessed is what? The king who comes in the name of the Lord. Only it wasn't triumphal, because as a whole, the nation was about to reject him. Actually, upon entering the city, what does he find? And this is why we're going over this end time sermon series. The people weren't ready. They were not ready. Before he could bless them with his presence in the temple, he had to cleanse it. And this is what he did that same day after he enters in triumphantly, he does this. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling. 
saying to them, it is written in my house shall be a house of prayer, but you made it a robber's den. This is not the first time that he has done this. He's had to cleanse the temple before, okay? But why a cleansing of the temple? Because if it wasn't cleansed, he couldn't be there. Because he is the very embodiment of the presence of God in human flesh. The very next day, by the way, history tells us, he goes to the temple to teach because it was cleansed. He could bless the people, his presence could be there, and he ministers to the people. Now, a few days later after this, he pronounces judgment upon Jerusalem that would be fulfilled in 70 AD, of course, at the fall of Jerusalem, and Matthew records this. So behold, your house, which is the temple, is being left to you desolate, and God's presence is absent. You see that? For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, you may recall during that week, the Passion Week, the week of, you know, we celebrate Easter, a whole week he would go and he would go to the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Bethany and travel back the next day and he would minister to the people. And what would happen? He was challenged repeatedly by the religious leadership. Okay. And finally he had enough and he pronounced the, I think it was seven or eight woes upon them where he used some of the harshest language found in the Bible anywhere. And they were continuing arguing with him and, and they were taking advantage of the people and he says, I'm done. And after this, in Matthew 23, this verse right here, we go to Matthew 24. He has just seen a widow give her last what? Might. In the midst of all this giving, this glorious rich temple, and it was this oppressive religious system that was keeping people like this lady in poverty. And he'd had enough. He'd had enough. And he says these words right here. Now, why this judgment, though? Well, Luke says it's because of this. And you can look at the context here, because he talks about as well what's going to happen to Israel in 70 AD. But he says, you did not recognize the time of your visitation. In other words, you didn't recognize the time that I, the king, came back. In other words, another way of saying it is, you weren't prepared. You weren't ready. Now, had God sent them envoys, messengers, to prepare them and to let them know? Yes. Who are they called? prophets, and they weren't ready. Not only were his people not ready for their king, but given the choice, they would reject them as their, they reject him as their king. On the day of his crucifixion, do you remember this right here? He's standing there with Pilate, and he's presented for the people. Look what they say. It was the day of preparation for the Passover, it was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So Pilate recognized him as his king in one sense. It was also being very sarcastic and ironic here, because he knew they didn't want him. And so they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, well, Look at that, and let that sink in. We have no king but Caesar. They rejected their king. In other words, the Jews would rather live under the rule of a pagan nation than embrace their true king. From that point on, until 1948, the Jews have been dispersed, and they have lived under the rule 
of a foreign nation. And ever since 1948, have they ever really been at peace? No, they have not. Now, that's some context to give you what we went through last week and as we go on this morning, because we're going to pick up where we left last week. Where's their king now? Remember from last week? He's returned, okay, in glorious fashion. The world is full of false Christs, wars, natural disasters, there's famines and earthquakes, there's persecution of the nation of Israel and the church. There's apostasies, people are falling away. There's lawlessness has increased. There's a worldwide gospel proclamation. The Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, whatever you're going to call him, a worldwide political and probably spiritual ruler has demanded to be worshipped. The church and the nation of Israel have refused. Intense persecution follows. People fall away from the church. And the Antichrist leads a global army to war against the nation of Israel. This, folks, is another cleansing of Israel that is called the Battle of Armageddon. The nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem has, for the most part, you might remember from last week, they've been conquered. Two-thirds of the nation perish. That's Zechariah 13, 8. And half of the city of Jerusalem perishes. The great loss of life serves as a cleansing for Israel as God prepares to save her. But all hope is not lost. Now I want you to take a moment and imagine that you are in this position, that you are a believer in the church and you're being persecuted in probably some sort of hiding this time. Or pretend you are a, a, a Jew in Israel. How much hope do you have? Very little, if any, okay? You're seeing a, a great loss of life. And then suddenly, God dims the lights. The sun is darkened. The moon provides no lights. Stars lose their illumination and fall from the sky. The seas roar as gravity is changed. The nations are perplexed. And suddenly, heaven opens, opens up. The blazing, Shekinah, blazing light of the Shekinah glory fills the sky. The archangel shouts. The trumpet blows. And King Jesus, not baby Jesus, King Jesus descends, followed by his army of angels and saints. The saints in heaven descending with him instantly are what? They're united with what? This is your future. This is your destiny. You should know this. What are you united with? An eternal glorified body. Okay? That's been resurrected. Okay? Believers who have endured on earth and their endurance proves that they're saved, by the way. They are caught up in the air. Their bodies are instantly transformed in the twinkling of an eye into eternal glorified bodies, and they return with their king. And it's the king, it's the king, it's the king. King Jesus as part of his army. 
Now, what happens next? Well, and again, this is what we think is happening, so don't hold us to the exact sequencing of these events, but as the text indicates, there's a revival that takes place amongst the people of Israel. God pours out his spirit on the surviving Jews. We put this verse right here. In fact, go there if you want to, because you're going to go to Zechariah 14. I will read this verse, but this is what happens. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. As he is descending, they're going to look upon him and recognize he was the one that we rejected. And they're going to mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadadrimim in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself, and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. They're going to mourn over their sin, as they look upon the one whom they rejected as their king, look upon the one that they crucified, really, on the cross by rejecting him. And this intense mourning is a sign of true repentance as they're given the gift of faith and they look to Jesus as he's coming in their time of great need and they believe in him as their savior. In this way, the words of Paul are fulfilled. Romans eleven twenty-five to 27. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them. I will take away their sins. And as they see their king descending, okay, the words of Jesus in Matthew are fulfilled, as I believe they're going to cry out what? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now what happens next? Well, roughly around the same time, the nations panic, and they hide from overwhelming fear. I'll read this verse to you. In Revelation says this, Then the kings of the earth... And the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Remember we talked about in Sunday school that the justice of God that's waiting in heaven what's about to be unleashed. And then, as he's coming down, turn to Zechariah 14, okay? And look at verse 3. This is when God enters the battle. The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Now, the next event is the reason why I believe there will be an actual battle of Armageddon in Jerusalem. But what is it? Well, Zechariah says this in verses 4 and 5, and I think this is absolutely fascinating. In that day, and that day is referring to what? 
It's called the day of the what? Day of the Lord, which is his, talking about his second coming. His feet will stand in the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. So in other words, Jesus' foot touches down in the Mount of Olives. Now, why the Mount of Olives? Well, there's two reasons. One, because this is what the scriptures say. And this is found in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. Just listen to this. Jesus saying to the disciples, after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And these men are who? They're angels. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, now watch this, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. So on the Mount of Olives, Jesus is taken up, and now we have word that he's going to come back where? To that Mount of Olives. Now, this is also a second reason why I believe there's a battle of Armageddon. This is where God in his sovereignty has come to judge the nations at the battle of Armageddon. You find it here in this verse, these verses. It says this, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, where they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war at the great day of God. What's the great day of God? The day of the Lord, his second coming, the Almighty. Verse 16, and they gathered them together, that is the Lord, gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. That's why I believe there will be, and that's why most theologians believe, there will be an actual battle of Armageddon. Now, let's go back to Zechariah 14, verses 4 and 5. I'm going to take a look at the valley he creates. Again, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move forward to the north and the other half toward the south. So in other words, if this is the Mount Olives right here, everyone look at me, okay? It's going to be split, and this is north and south, and it's going to create a valley. It's going to go to the east and to the west, okay? This valley is going to be created. And there's a reason for that. I want you to know that this in Zechariah, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 14, is not the only place that this is mentioned. Joel talks about God gathering the nations in a valley on the day of the Lord. This is found in Joel 3, 9 through 16. I'll read it to you. It says, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Now, this is the exact opposite of what God does, but look what it says here. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Whereas in God's kingdom, what do you do with your swords? You beat them into plowshares. You see that? Let the weak say, I'm a mighty man. Verse 11. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. What's that refer to? 
us coming with Jesus, the mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. You know what that judgment's called? Judgment of the sheep and goats. Okay, we'll get there. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of, and here's the key. I know Roberta knows this because she's said it before. It's the valley of decision. What happens at the judgment of the sheep and goats? Your fate is decided. Either you go to the left or the right. Either you're a sheep or the goat. Okay? That's the valley of decision that was created when? When his foot stepped down and he created this valley. Okay? Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. Does that sound familiar? The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth tremble. John records this in Revelation 6, 18 to 21. There were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city, what is the great city in the Bible? Jerusalem. It says it was split or divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men great hail of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent, which is a hundred pounds. The verse Revelation 6, 14 says, And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. This is what is happening when he comes again. Now, when Jesus' foot touches down on the Mount of Olives, a supernatural earthquake will generate a worldwide cataclysm. That's the best way we can understand these verses. Every mountain and island are moved. Let me explain what I think that means. Have we ever had an earthquake, for example, that has originated maybe in Alaska, and you can feel it in Massachusetts? Yes, that's happened before. I don't know you know that or not. Okay. There are earthquakes that can happen in one part of the world, and we feel it vibration here. Okay? This is going to be the mother of all earthquakes, and it's going to shake, apparently, everything. Every mountain and island are moved. Jerusalem will be split into three parts. Great hail falls from heaven, and the Mount of Olives is split in two, from north to south, creating a valley from the east to the west. Now, just so you know, such seismic upheavals, they're not uncommon when God announces his coming in judgment. There's other verses we don't have time in Micah and other places where it talks about the mountains melting like wax at his coming. Now, to help you, here are two maps to give you some perspective. This is right here. See right here? That is the Mount of Olives. And you can see Bethany's not far from here, and there's Jerusalem. But what I want you to see is that obviously right here is what? The Dead Sea, and over here would be the Mediterranean Sea, Correct? So this is going to be split, and you see all this, if you can see it, it's a mountainous area. This is going to go north, this is going to go south, and this valley is going to be created here to here. Okay? If 
we're interpreting things correctly, this is where the judgment, where he comes again and where the judgment takes place. Matthew 25 talks about that, the judgment of the sheep and goats. Okay? Does that help? Okay, how about this? This is a closer-up picture. This is actually the Mount of Olives. Right there's the Gethsemane and the Garden of Gethsemane. And right here is you go down and back up, and this is what? That's the temple, Herod's temple, the court of the Gentiles, all of that. Okay? This is Jerusalem in Jesus' time. So obviously, to go from here to here was what? A Sabbath day journey. They were allowed to walk from here to here. That was it. Okay? This, if you were at the time of Jesus, this is going to be split into three parts. So it's going to be a great earthquake. And I want you to see that although, although it offers some protection, the Mount of Olives... What does it do to people that are trapped here? Because you go over to here, eventually, what are you going to run into? The ocean. Where can they go from here? They're kind of trapped, aren't they? And so the Mount of Olives is a, a great obstacle to an eastern escape from Jerusalem. But they built Jerusalem up on a mountain for what purpose? Protection. But this large new valley going straight out from Jerusalem to the east, will offer a quick route of escape for the besieged, believing remnant of Jerusalem. Look at verse 5 of chapter 14 of Zechariah, because this is exactly what happens. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. We don't know where Azel was at the time. We think it was probably near the entrance to, the, to Jerusalem. But there was a great earthquake in Amos 1.1 1, 1, uh, during the reign of Uzziah, king of Judah. But that's all we know. But obviously it was bad enough that people had to flee Jerusalem. But the valley of Jehoshaphat, which Joel also calls the valley of decision, that's the valley. The valley by mountains, it's the same thing. You see where it's going to happen. This is where God will gather all the nations and judge them after his people are now able to flee from safety. Look at the rest of verse 5. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. What's that referring to? His second coming and his army of us believers coming with him. So God and his armies will devastate the armies of the world at that location as they attempt to pursue, we believe, the remnant of Israel that will have just escaped eastward through the valley God created for that very purpose. And theologians believe it will probably be similar to the judgment of Pharaoh's army, as the Jews did what? Crossed through what? On dry ground, Red Sea, okay? And God had opened up for Israel's escape from Egypt, his judgment will come down, crashing down on the nations, just as they did on the armies of, of Egypt. And that valley, God calls it the valley of my mountains. And his judgment comes in the form, as we're going to find out here, of confusion. As the armies fight each other, and even Judah, the surviving smaller towns that we talked about previously, joins the battle. Look at verses 13 and 14. It will come about in that day, the day of the Lord, that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them, and they will seize one another's hand, 
and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem. And in a twist of irony, as these nations are defeated, the wealth that was taken from them in verse 1, everyone look at Zechariah 14, verse 1. You see that? The wealth that has been taken from Israel by the nations will now be divided among God's people. Look, look at verse 14, the end of it. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. That's eerily similar of what happened when the people left Egypt. Because what did the Egyptians do? They were so tired of the plagues that God created, they said, take all our stuff, just leave. Okay? Now, the plague of destruction that afflicts God's enemies will even extend their livestock. Look at verse 15. So also this plague will be like the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, and the donkey, and all the cattle that will be in those camps. But not only that, Jerusalem will be dramatically changed. Look at verse 8. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. So right in the middle of Mount Moriah, I just showed you that map there. You can see it there. Where the Jerusalem temple would have been, God will create a gushing spring that will send rivers to both the east and the west. Now, I believe that that's all going to be real water because of what Isaiah says in Isaiah 35.1. I don't think I put it up there, but no. It just says this. You can listen. The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus or the rose. I'll explain to you in a second here what the Arabah is. But there's literally rose will grow in this area, which has been a desert. Okay? But I also believe that the living water is not just water. It's a prophetic picture of how spiritual blessing, living waters, will flow from Jerusalem, which will be the center of the kingdom. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Look at verse 10. All the land will be changed into a plain. That's Arabah. Okay? Because it's mountainous, you can see it's now what? A flat valley, a plain. From Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem, this is so key, will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wines, king's wine presses. So this tremendous earthquake that takes place levels mountains, creating a plain, Arabah, that's now 40 miles, we know, from Geba to Remnant, where the waters now flow. If this area, which is mountainous, is now flattened, but Jerusalem isn't, guess what? Jerusalem will stick up like a solitaire on a diamond ring. It'll be elevated. And then God will rebuild the city of Jerusalem according to the dimensions given in verse 10. When it says, from the gates, the tower, to the wine presses, that was the dimension of the city uh, when it was in its glory prior to its banishment, its exile. 
And once again, Jerusalem will be the prominent city in appearance and the royal city containing the throne of Jesus Christ. We're not even done yet. <laughs> but we're out of time. Now, again, what I've done to you, and I'll, I'll tell you that, as I remind everybody again, I want you to think of these things, meditate on these things, but this is, is something that, that we hold very, very loosely. I'm giving you a, a more of a literal understanding of this because it, it's, it's the easiest to understand, okay? And know this, that it's, this is a very, very hard chapter to break down, even literally. I told you before that those that, that don't take a little interpretation of these events and, and take it more symbolically or figuratively, it creates a mess for them, which is why Martin Luther said, I'm, a, I'm done with this. This is just a nightmare, okay? But the amount of evidence is, is, is the amount of verses, I, I do believe that this, there, he will come back to Mount of Olives. There will be this massive earthquake, okay? I do believe there's going to be a judgment, and we'll get back to that in Matthew 25, the judgment of the sheep and goats and so on, all right? We'll learn next week a little bit about that judgment and what's going to happen to the people there that Zechariah tells us. Okay. But you okay? You follow me? It seems a little heavy in here. I want you to be encouraged. This is a good thing that's happening. All right? He's coming again. And did you know that there was that much detail? Did you know this? No. Well, good. Now you know. And to one has been given much, much is required, much is expected. So think about these things this week. And you will be encouraged, as I've been, as I've been preparing this, okay? Because that's your destiny. Quite honestly, I kind of hope I'm gone before this. <laughs> so I come back, you know, I can get some rest, get ready for the battle, and then come down and get my glorified body. And, and you know, so. But if not, I'll know how it's going to play out. Because he's told us everything in advance so that we would know and be ready. Don't be like the Jews. Let's not be like the Jews who were not ready and they suffered greatly. Okay? Okay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We worship you. Encourage our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We won't close the songs as we went over in time. So have a great day. Enjoy the weather. I know it's going to rain again, but it's going to be sunnier as the week goes on. So enjoy the weather. God bless you.